Good, good, good morning, church. Good to have you here with us. Who's excited to be here today? June 23rd. Yeah. Pastor Keith mentioned a few minutes ago, today is Promotion Sunday, which means this. All of our students throughout the entire church are moving up to the next grade. Our kindergartners are going into first grade. First graders are going to second grade. Second graders are going to third grade, and so on. You can do the math from there, unless you need to go back to kindergarten yourself. Uh, but we are also celebrating graduates, because our 12th graders are going into 13th grade, I suppose, or in the military, or job, or whatever next step it is. So if you have just graduated high school, or if you just graduated from college, will you stand so we can recognize you. Are there any graduates here? Several of them. You're like, I don't want to be the only one standing. All right, stay standing for a second. Stay standing for a second. We're going to come around with a microphone and you're going to talk about all the things you're going to do with the rest of your life. Just kidding. We won't. <laughs> no, but what we do want to do is we just want to say a prayer and bless. No, you, you sat down. You're supposed to stay standing. We want to pray over you and whatever your next step is. So if you're near a graduate, if you put a hand on their shoulder or a hand on their leg or something, let them know you're praying for them. Let's pray together as a congregation for all of our graduates. That'll be awesome. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. For each of these graduates, all the work, all the tests, all the nervousness, all the anxiety, all the studying, or the lack thereof, they're finally here. And they're finally graduated. And God, I, I thank you for that accomplishment and that achievement. I pray for their next step. You know their entire journey. You know their entire life. And you know everything that they're going to do with their lives. So God, I pray for clarity and discernment that each one of these graduates is able to, to take their passions and their strength and their experience and their, uh, the gifts that you've entrusted to them and be able to go and, and, and give those uh, to the world and impact this world in a, in a way that honors you and brings honor to your name. So Father, bring clarity for their next step, whatever it may be, and a joy and an excitement for what's to come, even though they don't know the whole picture like you do. May we trust in you with every part of our lives. May we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, because of how we've lived our lives. Thank you for these graduates and their achievements that they've, they've had today uh, and that they're experiencing right now. And we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Give it one more round of applause for all of our graduates. So today we are continuing on in our series called The Hunt. We've been in this series for the last several weeks, and this whole series has been about one particular phrase that God says about a man named David, and he describes him as a man after God's own heart. That's what this whole series has been about. And more specifically, how do I get that description? How do you get the description of God describing you as a person after God's own heart? So a couple weeks ago when we started this whole series, we started sharing steps. In fact, there's five steps that you can take to become a person after God's own heart. We've already gone through steps. Step one, step two, step three. Today we're going to unpack step four. Next week as we wrap up the series, we're going to talk about step number five. But if, uh, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn your Bible, turn, turn your version app to 1 Samuel chapter 24. That's where we're going to pick up the story and jump in. And as you're turning there, again, 1 Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible, so you can start in Genesis and start flipping on over and you'll eventually get there. Uh, as you flip to 1 Samuel chapter 24, let me give you the brief refresher as far as where we've been so far, steps 1, 2, and 3. When we started this whole series of the hunt a couple weeks ago, we were introduced to a teenage boy named David. Now David was a sheep herder, which is funny because a couple days ago I'm sitting at the Farmington Library working on this message. I'm sitting there in a chair, in a comfy chair, with my laptop, and there's a woman that comes and sits down across from me and she's wearing a shirt that says the original sheep herder, which is funny because I'm here sitting and writing a message about David, who is like the original sheep herder. So I was like, I'm going to be a little bit of a creeper, but I'm going to do it anyways. I pulled up my phone and took a picture of her so I could share with you this morning. There's the original sheep herder woman. I have no idea who this woman is. I apologize if you attend this church or if you happen to know her. She's like your mom or grandma or your sister or something. Sorry, but I'm like, she's not the original sheep herder. David is the original sheep herder. So 
So if you know her, tell her, don't get it twisted. David is the original sheep herder. You are not. Anyway, no offense to that woman. So back to what I was saying. So a couple weeks ago, we started this whole journey. David's a teenager. He's the original sheep herder, not that woman. So he's a sheep herder. <laughs> he's not equipped. He's not trained. He's, he's not a soldier like several of his brothers. Yet that being said, God comes to him and he says, hey, you are going to be the, the, the king of Israel one day. One day you're going to inherit the nation of Israel. Now, as a former youth pastor, over, over the course of a decade, I have had a lot of students, thousands of students that I've had the opportunity to interact with. And most high school students, mid-school students, most, most teenagers are really excited when they're told they can get a driver's license. Most teenagers are excited when mom and dad tell them, hey, you can date, or you can get a boyfriend or girlfriend. I can't imagine what it's like for David as a teenager to be told by God, you're going to get a country. You're going to get a, a nation of Israel. And we discovered three weeks ago when we started this journey, there was something different about David's heart, which led to step one. If you want to be a person after God's own heart, you have to examine your own heart. Examine your heart. Check what's in your heart. As, as the, uh, the rapper Ice Cube would say, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. The nine o'clock was like... <coughs> Who's Ice Cube? <laughs> anyway, so step one is check yourself before you wreck yourself. Examine your own heart. See what's in your heart. Is there anything that is not godly in your heart? Is there any animosity, resentment, bitterness, anything like that that's in your heart? You've got to get rid of that. That was week one. Week two, we continued on in the story. We saw that David was asked by his dad, Jesse. Jesse said, hey, will you go take your brothers some food who are fighting on the front lines of the Israelite army versus the Philistines? So David says, oh, I'm the original sheep herder, but I'll leave my sheep behind. Somebody else can watch them. I'll take food to my brothers. So he takes some bread, takes some cheeses, gets to the front line, and when he gets to the Philistine-Israelite battle zone, he recognizes that there's this dude, this behemoth of a man who's nine foot seven inches tall, coming out and taunting the army of the Israelites. And he's taunting the army, he's taunting King Saul, he's taunting God, and so David's like, I can't have this guy mocking my God. He says, King Saul, will you put me in? Will you let me go and take out this guy? So King Saul says, sure, it's your funeral, go ahead, kid. So he goes in there with a little slingshot and with a rock and boop, 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 hits him in the forehead, game over for Goliath, he falls down on the ground, which leads to step two that we talked about a couple weeks ago, which is slay any giant that stands between you and God. When you do step one, you examine your heart and you realize, okay, there's something in my heart that's not godly, whatever that is. Maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's idolatry, maybe it's a secret sin, maybe it's even something like comfort that normally is a good thing, but if it gets between you and God, you've got to kill off that giant. So step number two in becoming a person after God's own heart, slay whatever giant comes between you and God. That was week two. Week three, last week, Father's Day, we continued on in the story. Uh, once Goliath was killed, David goes up and cuts his head off. And he starts walking around the camp, the Israelite army camp, with the head of Goliath. And all the soldiers in the Israelite army, they're like, dude, this guy's legit. David is awesome. Even King Saul is like, man, this guy is too legit, too legit to quit. Hey, hey. <laughs> anyway, so King Saul says, I'm going to put you at the high rank in the army, so I'm going to put you out there. And so David goes in, in, into another battle, and he fights there, and he's success, successful here and here and here and all over the place. He's doing really, really well to the point where at one point, King Saul and David are walking through some towns, and all these women come out, and they're like, oh, David, you're so fine, you're so fine, you're blah, blah, hey, David. And King Saul's like, how come people aren't singing those songs about me? Like, why are they liking David instead of me? And so he gets jealous inside his heart. He hasn't guarded his heart. So inside his heart creeps and seeps in jealousy. At which point, 
King Saul's like, I got to take this guy out. I got to kill my number one soldier, my number one warrior. I got to kill off David. And so he throws a spear at David. And now David's playing like dodgeball, spear, dodgeball, and, you know, dodging the spear. And so he dodges it. King Saul throws another spear. He dodges that one, at which point the hunt begins. David takes off. He runs away. King Saul takes 3,000 people in an army and begins pursuing in this hot pursuit after uh, David. David winds up in a cave to take a break. He's with some of his men. King Saul is, is uh, right behind him. He also goes into that same cave to go take a break, to have a pit stop. Uh, he goes into the cave, and he doesn't even realize David's in the cave. And all of David's men are like, oh, my gosh, David, there's King Saul. You can take him out. This is your moment. You can take out the king, and you can become the king. But David says, no, 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 no. That's not what God has asked me to do. And so he doesn't. He doesn't touch uh, the king, doesn't harm the king. King Saul leaves the cave. David walks out right behind him and says, hey, King Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And so King Saul looks back at David and says, you're a better person than I am. You, you are admirable. You are honoring to God. I am not. You deserve to be the next king of Israel, which leads to our third step. If you want to be a person described after God's own heart, you've got to honor God no matter what. Honor God no matter what. Step one, examine your heart. Check your heart. Is there anything ungodly in your heart? Step two, slay whatever is, is ungodly in your heart. Get, get rid of that. But step three, honor God no matter what. Maybe it's inconvenient. Maybe it's uncomfortable. But when you choose to honor God, other people will follow your lead. Just like when David honored God, not touching and not killing King Saul, King Saul followed that lead. Honor God no matter what. That's where we've been so far, and that's where we pick up the story today. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, if you're there, we're going to be starting in verse 21. Now, King Saul had just told David, you're a better man than I am. And you're going you're gonna to receive the kingdom. You're going to become the king of Israel at some point. So he just said that. But then there's a contingency that King Saul gives to David. He says this, verse 21. 1 Samuel 24, 21. King Saul says to David, he says, Swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. In other words, King Saul is saying, David, when you become king, please don't just kill me. Don't kill off my whole family because I've been not nice to you and I haven't been kind to you. Please don't obliterate my whole family. Will you just let my family name go on? Will you let the legacy go on? And, and David's a nice guy. He's compassionate. He's gracious. So in verse 22, we see that David gave his oath to Saul. Tell you what, Saul, I won't kill off your sons. I won't kill off your family. I'll let your family continue to leave. Even though I'm under no obligation to honor you once I'm the king, I'll go ahead and, and give you this oath. I won't kill off your family. Now, that being said, fast forward. If you were following the line in your scripture or in your app, go to uh, 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31, we find King Saul. He's face-to-face -face with the Israelite army, leading the army, again facing the Philistines. Now, this battle is about to go down again. It's like Groundhog Day. We've already seen this battle, the Philistines versus the Israelites before. Last time we saw it, Goliath would come out every single morning, taunt the armies, and nothing happened for 40 days until David showed up. David showed up and killed Goliath, at which point the Philistine army turned and they fled and they ran. But this time... It's the Israelites, led by King Saul, versus the Philistines. They're back for vengeance. They're back for revenge. You killed our leader. You killed Goliath, and now we want to come and kill you. So it's this epic battle that's about to go down. But, but the difference between this version and the earlier version is that David was there for the earlier one. But David's not a part of the army anymore. David's not in this Israelite army because King Saul literally chased him off. So now King Saul doesn't have David, and therefore because David was the person after God's own heart, not Saul, King Saul is about to go into a battle against the Philistines without God, which is a scary place to be. Perhaps you've heard it said before, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> That's what it's like going into a battle without God. You don't ever want to go into a battle. You don't want to ever go into a, a war 
without God on your side. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Don't pick a fight without God in sight. Don't pick a fight without God in sight. God's got to be on your side. You've got to have God in your corner. You don't ever want to go onto the battlefield without God. You don't ever want to go into the battlefield without God being for you, right there alongside you. Remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago when Paul said to the Romans, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now this is a positive statement. This is a reassuring statement. If God is for us, who could be against us? What can be against us? But what if God wasn't for you? What if, what if those two words that are highlighted, what if those were inverted? If God isn't for us, who can't be against us? That's a scary place to be. You don't ever want to be in a place where God is not for you, where God is perhaps against you. You don't ever want to be in that place and leaving God out of your battles, which is why David later on wrote in the book of Psalms, he's the author of the Psalms, he wrote several descriptions of God and how God is David's protector. Look at some of the, the Psalms that, that, uh, that David writes about. Psalm 18.2, David writes this. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. These are all descriptive attributes of how David views God. Look at Psalm chapter 5. Here's what, what David says. He says, let all those who take refuge, or let all those who take refuge in God be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, God. This is how David views God. There's another verse, Psalm 18, uh, 32. David says, it is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. Now, these are only three verses that we've pulled out. I mean, you could go through Scripture and find all sorts of different verses that talk about God being your strength, being your security, being your, being your protection. But just in three verses from David, there's a list of six different attributes that we see David describing God as. Look at, let's look at those attributes. David says, God, you're my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my strength, my security. If this is what God is, why would we ever want to go into a battle without that? Why would we ever want to go face an, an enemy without this list of attributes? Why would we ever want to go into a war without God on our side? Don't ever go into a battle without God right there in your corner. King Saul and the Israelites are about to go down face to face with the Israelites, but God is not with them because King Saul hasn't invited God to the party. So that's not going to be a good day. We continue the story, 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 1. The Philistines fought against Israel. And the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead at Mount Gilboa. Now this scenario is the exact opposite of what happened in the earlier battle, battle with the Israelites and the Philistines. Remember, in that earlier battle, David kills Goliath, the Philistines turn, and they run, and they flee. In this scenario, King Saul left God out of the scenario. He left God out of the situation. The Philistines are overcoming the Israelites, and when they realize they're getting beat, they start to flee. The Israelites start to lead. But the Philistines don't just let them go. They start chasing them down to go finish the job. We continue on. Verse 2. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed Saul's sons. This is the exact opposite scenario that King Saul wanted. Remember, he had just asked King David, hey, when you become the king, please don't kill off my family. Please don't kill off my sons. Let me continue to have a family legacy. And while David honored that, the Philistines came and hunted Saul down because Saul didn't have God on his side. They hunted Saul's sons down and killed his sons. And that's a pretty bad day for King Saul, knowing his family legacy just got killed. But it gets worse. Verse 3, the fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded Saul critically. Not only have his sons been killed, but now Saul himself is critically injured. Again, this is a bad day for King Saul. So he, he's got his companion right next to him, this armor bearer. And he goes to the armor bearer and says, just finish me off. Just kill me now before these Philistines get a hold of me. This is what we see in verse 4. Saul said to his armor bearer, 
Draw your sword and run through me. Or these uncircumcised fellows, these Philistines, will come and run through me and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. In other words, King Saul took his own life. He committed suicide. After 40 years of running the nation of Israel, after 40 years as a king, he ended by taking his own life. Now let me say this about Saul. Saul was not a guy that loved God. He wasn't obedient to God. He didn't listen to God. He, he, he didn't respect God. He didn't have that kind of relationship with God. That All that being said, it didn't mean he had to take his own life. Perhaps he thought he was backed into a corner. Perhaps he thought he had no other way to go. Perhaps it even says he was critically injured. He thought he was going to die anyway, so he might as well finish off the job. He might as well do it himself. Maybe those were his thoughts, but, but I've also heard about stories of people who have stage 4 cancer that somehow and miraculously God brought them back from a diagnosis that said they were going to pass away in two weeks. And here they are two decades later still ticking. <laughs> I've heard stories of people who have who've been clinically dead and then they've been shocked and brought back to life. I've heard stories of miraculous things of our God that somehow intervenes. He doesn't intervene with everybody in every scenario, but I do believe that we have a God that does what we think is impossible. There's scenarios that have no explanation other than God intervening saying, I'm going to bring this person back. I read scripture from the, from the New Testament. When Lazarus dies, he's like dead, dead. Jesus is like, no, you're not. Come back, Lazarus. <laughs> And I read stories about that. I read stories about Jesus himself being put into the tomb, and for three days he was dead, but then God the Father brings him back from the dead. We believe and have faith in a God that provides seemingly impossible scenarios, yet somehow provides solutions. So, so when, when I read a story about King Saul, says, well, I got no chance. I've got, no, got nowhere else to go. This is the end for me. I might as well take my life. I'm thinking, no, you don't know my God. Because my God, there's... there's what seems like the end, what seems like an impossible scenario, perhaps is not the end after all. And I say that because statistically, there's multiple people in this service right now that you're contemplating right now taking your life. And I just want to be a voice of truth to you this morning. That's not your only option. It shouldn't be an option. You might feel backed into a corner. You might feel like this is the end. You got no other place to go, but I... I'm telling you, there is a God who loves you and has created you and cares for you and has a plan and a future for you. Here's my challenge. If you are contemplating taking your own life, here's my challenge for you to consider. Don't cut God's plan for your life short. As long as you're still here, as long as you're still pumping blood and breathing, God ain't done with you yet. So don't you dare cut God's plan for your life short. I bring this up part, partly because this coming Saturday, there's an event here in town at Bird Park called Love for Thad. And it's all about uh, a young man named Thad who unfortunately a few years ago took his own life. And his mom and a few other people in town, they don't want anybody to go through that pain. They don't want anybody to go through that scenario. And so they've created an event called Love for Thad, and they're inviting people from the community. And in fact, they've invited me to come and speak. And so there's a walk in the morning. There's all sorts of vendors, things going on, fun activities. At 5 p.m., I'm going to be speaking about uh, how your life matters, and I would encourage you to come. In fact, you can sign up in the plaza as you leave here today. If you want to sign up and be one of the walkers, you want to come and show your support for suicide awareness, strides against suicide, I would encourage you to be a part of that. Because, friends, what you think the end is, it may not be God's plan for you. Suicide never has to be an option, and it breaks my heart. I read an article this last week that says suicide, suicide is higher right now than it has ever been before, especially in the Native American culture. It breaks my heart because people are believing a lie that's not true. As long as you are here, God's not done with you 
yet. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. What you think is the end isn't always God's plan. What you think, you might be convinced that this is the end for you. That may not be God's plan for you. Don't consider taking your life. King Saul felt backed into a corner. He felt like he was gonna, his life was over anyway, so he might as well just take his own life. He made that decision, took his own life, and that was it. After 40 years of being the king, that's, that's what he left with, of taking his own life and committing suicide. Now, shortly after that, a messenger goes to David and, and brings David what he thinks is good news. Hey, David, good news. King Saul's gone. He's dead. That means you get to be the king. You get to inherit the kingdom of Israel. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this amazing? Now, perhaps you would think David would be like, yes, that is good news. I'm so thankful because that guy had it out for me. King Saul didn't like me. He tried to kill me multiple times. He threw spears at me. You'd think he'd be grateful. You'd think he'd be joyful. You'd think he'd be uh, great, grateful that, that finally his nemesis and enemy is dead and gone, but that's not how David responded. Look at how David responded to the news that King Saul had passed away. We're now in Second Samuel. The end of 1 Samuel is chapter 31 in 1 Samuel 31. That's when King Saul dies. We move into the next book and continue on the story. 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 11. It says this, then David and all of his men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. Now this is just symbolic of they're, they're grieving, they're hurting. They tear clothes. This is what people did back then. They tore their clothes. Verse 12, they mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now here's the question I want you to consider. Why do you think that David mourned when King Saul died? Why didn't he cheer? Why didn't he say, yes, finally he's gone? Why didn't he respond that way? Why do you think that he mourned and wept and fasted? And perhaps when you read this, you're like, well, there's other people he was mourning for. Uh, maybe Jonathan, because Jonathan and David had become really good friends. Maybe he was just upset that his, his, his buddy, Jonathan, had passed away. Or maybe it's because the army of the Lord. Some of David's brothers were fighting in the Israelite army. So it doesn't say in Scripture, but maybe some of his brothers died. So maybe he was mourning and weeping and tearing his clothes because some of his brothers died in the army. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because of the nation of Israel. They were all grieving. Because sometimes when, when national tragedies take place, think 9-11 or Columbine or something like that. When those things take place, even though it may not affect our relatives, we still as a nation grieve and we mourn. So maybe it's the, he's, he's weeping and, and grieving because it's, he's part of the nation of Israel. But we can't dismiss the fact that in scripture it says specifically for Saul. He mourned and wept and fasted for Saul. So the question I have still is valid. Why would David weep and mourn and grieve and tear his clothes for King Saul? King Saul, the guy that came after him, the King Saul, the guy that wanted to murder him on multiple occasions, tried to murder him. Why would David grieve the death of King Saul? And the answer to that question, I think we find a little bit later on when we, we see the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, when he talks about loving our enemies. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard one thing said, but I'm telling you something different. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This isn't just like, hey, we should talk about loving our enemies. Or we should just say that we love our enemies. Or we just like, pretend that we love our enemies. Jesus is saying, you've you got to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then the question, question is, do we do that? Because if you don't do that, if you don't love your enemies, I would, I would go as far as to say, I don't know if you're following Jesus. What is, it be, what is it to be a Christian? A Christian is somebody who follows Jesus. They're a little Christ. If you're not loving your enemies like Jesus did, are you really following Jesus? 
Are you really a little Christ? Consider the words of Miroslav Volf. He's the uh, uh, professor of theology at Yale University. He said this. He said, if you take the love your enemy out of Christianity, you've unchristened the Christian faith. If you take that love your enemy part out of Christianity, you just unchristian your Christian faith. And here's the sad reality. Many people, even within this room, people watching online right now, you have unchristian the Christian faith. Why? Because somebody's wronged you. Somebody's hurt you. Somebody did something against you, and oh, it bugs you. And oh, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. But deep in your heart, you've got animosity. You've got bitterness. You've got resentment. And you haven't really forgiven them. You're holding on to that. That's what's in your heart. And when it says we should love our enemies, we're like, ah, let's just talk about it. Let's, let's in theory, say that we love our enemies. But I'm not going to really love my enemies. You've just unchristened the Christian faith. If you don't love your enemies, you take that part out, you're not following Jesus' lead. Friends, you want to be a person who is a person after God's own heart? You want to be described in that way? Step number four is this. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That's step number four in this journey and being a person after God's own heart. You want to be a person after God's own heart. Love your enemy. Don't just talk about it. Don't just say it. Don't pretend that you love your enemy. Actually love your enemy. So here's the question that I have for you, which is kind of a gut check question. Who are you not loving? Who are you holding love back from? Because of something that they've done, something that they did, something that they said, maybe yesterday, maybe a week ago, maybe last month, maybe last decade. Who are you choosing to not love? Maybe that gives you an idea as far as who you consider to be an enemy. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5.46. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you, not even the tax collectors doing that. The point Jesus is making is that you've got to love people who are not loving to you. You've got to love people who are hurtful to you. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you go and, you know, if you've been abused by somebody or, you've, or somebody's come after you and, and harmed you in some way, I'm not saying you should go and become their BFF. In fact, even if you look at, at David, when he was, his life was being threatened by Saul, he fled away from Saul. So I'm not saying put yourself in harm's danger. But even then, even though David was, was being pursued by King Saul, he still grieved. Why? Because he loved his enemy. He had a hard time. He didn't, didn't rejoice when King Saul failed. He had a difficult time. He tore his clothes. He wept. Why? Because he loved his enemy. Do we really love our enemies? Do you really love your enemies? This is the challenge that is very difficult, but you want a, a simple solution to that? You want to be a person after God's own heart? Love your enemies. How do you do that? Here's the practical way of doing it. Forgive them. This is how you love your enemies. And, and maybe, maybe that's not even a conversation you have with them. Somebody after the last service, they said, well, what happens if the person, the person who wronged me is already dead? Still forgive them. Because we are responsible for us and our hearts. Not responsible for the actions and the, the, what other people do. We are responsible for us. So perhaps forgiving them doesn't change them. It doesn't maybe change their actions. doesn't change their heart. But we don't have to hold on to that. Step one, examine your heart. you got bitterness in it. you got resentment in your heart. you got to slay whatever that giant is in your heart. Honor God no matter what, even if it's uncomfortable. And step number four, love your enemies. And how do you do that? You forgive them. You forgive your enemies. And I'll be honest with you. I think that this particular challenge is one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult thing as a follower of Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I, I think it's a good suggestion for you to love your enemies. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus says, love your enemies. Forgive your enemies. This is what Jesus is commanding for us to do. It is the hardest thing to do to be a follower of Jesus. But here's what I've also discovered. 
What I've discovered is that when sometimes you do something that's a bit tough, a little bit challenging, if you do that, sometimes it's, it's easier to do something a little bit more tough, a little bit more challenging. If you do that, it's a little bit easier to do something a little bit more tough, a little bit more challenging. So here's what I'm going to ask for you this morning. I'm going to ask you to do something tough and a little bit challenging. In just a moment, not just yet, but in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to literally take a stand. If you are somebody that has been holding on to resentment, you know there's somebody that's wronged you in some way that you haven't forgiven, but you want to forgive them. You want to be described as a person after God's own heart. You want to be somebody who loves your enemies. You don't want to just talk about it. You don't want to just say it's a theory. You don't want to just, just, just pretend to love your enemies. You actually want to do that. They're, they're responsible for them. You're responsible for you. So in a moment, I'm going to ask if that's you and you've been holding on to whatever this is, but you're willing to let that go and literally take a stand, that's tough. It's tough to take a stand in front of other people. It's tough to say, yes, this has been something that's in my heart, but I don't want it to be in my heart. I want to be a person after God's own heart. I want to let this go. I want to forgive them. I want to love my enemies. If that's you, and when I invite you to stand, it doesn't matter if anybody stands around you, but if you do something that's difficult, a little bit challenging, then maybe, maybe you'll be able to get, get to the point where you authentically in your heart have chosen to forgive them. So, are you willing to do something that's a little bit risky, a little bit tough, a little bit challenging, maybe a little bit embarrassing? Are you willing to take a stand and say, I want to be somebody, I want to be somebody who is after God's own heart, and I'm willing I'm willing to do something that's tough because I'm accountable before God to each their own. Everybody else, they can do what they want. But for me, for my heart, I want to to trust God. And if God's told me I need to forgive my enemies, if I need to love them, then I'm willing to do that. If that's you, and if you're ready to do something bold and courageous, on the count of three, I want to invite you to stand right where you're at. One, two, three. Notice that I'm standing with you. Because I too have been wounded. I too have been hurt. I too have been wronged. And I can hold on to that. You can hold on to that into your hearts and you'd be like, well, this is what they deserve because they, how they treated me, how they talked to me. Or we can say, you know what? I'm giving that to God. I'm going to kill that giant off. I'm not going to be resentful. I'm not going to be bitter. And, and, and at least to take the stand and say, this is the kind of person that I want to be. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for taking the stand because it takes guts and it takes courage to say, I'm not going to be somebody who harbors bitterness. I'm going to love my enemies. Why? Because Jesus Christ told me I should do that. Remember, Jesus was on the cross. The very people who put him on the cross, he's looking down at them. In the, he's in the process of being murdered. He's in the process of being executed. And he's looking at the people who put him on the cross and he says, forgive them, Father. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And even while the crime is going on, he still chooses to forgive them. We can be people who are bitter and resentful and hold on to those things, or we can say, you know what, I trust you, God. I'm going to love my enemies. And it doesn't make any sense. Is it deserved that you love your enemy? No. Is the forgiveness and the grace that you get from God deserved? No. Here's what Colossians 3.13 says. It says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We're challenged. We are called to do difficult things as followers of Jesus. And this is one of the most difficult things that you will ever do, is choose to forgive your enemies. I also believe there's some people who are still sitting right now. For whatever reason, you didn't stand, but you know you got somebody to forgive. I'm going to pray for, for those of us standing. Stay standing while I pray over us and the people that have wronged us. But if you want to stand in the middle of the prayer, you're welcome to do that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, the courage demonstrated this morning. I thank you for the guts that each one of these friends of mine has to stand up and say, hey, I've, I've, got, I've got this thing in my heart is bitterness, is resentment, and I've been holding on to it, but I want to let that go. God, I, 
I thank you for, for what's demonstrated in, in the fearlessness this morning. I pray that this, this one step of standing in a church service would be something that leads to another step of actually intentionally forgiving somebody. That forgiveness, I know, is not deserved. The grace is not deserved, but that's what grace is. It's an undeserved gift. So God, thank you for the grace you've given to us. Thank you for giving us a taste of what that feels like. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve your grace, yet you still choose to love us anyways. You choose to forgive our sins. You throw our sin as far as the east is from the west. God, we thank you for that type of unconditional love. I pray for my friends who are standing right now. And you give them the strength to do the same thing for their enemies. People who have wronged them, they don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve the grace. May we be Christ-like. May we, we stop taking the Christ out of Christianity. And we stop unchristianing Christianity. And God, may, we use, may you use us to bring hope, to bring joy, to bring truth, even to our enemies. So God, I thank you for this crew of people that's standing right now. I pray for strength, for courage, for boldness, and for your blessings, Father, as they choose to take more steps and do the difficult thing of choosing to love their enemies by choosing to forgive. We thank you, God, for your son, and the grace that's available to us because of what he did on the cross, the undeserved gift that we are able to enjoy because of how much you love us. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you give a round of applause to the people standing right now? Thank you. Speaking of bold and courageous acts, you can go ahead and take your seat. Speaking of bold and courageous steps, next week we're having baptisms in the service, which I'm really excited about. We're going to have a tank up on stage, and there's going to be water all over the place, and you're going to have to wear ponchos if you're on the front row. So it's going to be a lot of fun, but baptism is basically, a, it's an outward expression of an, an inward decision, uh, similar to the fact that I wear a wedding ring. On July 24, 2009 is when uh, I got married, but that wasn't the moment that I fell in love with Ashton. I had fallen in love with her way earlier than that. So on that day of the wedding ceremony, that was the public declaration of what was already in my heart. And that's what a baptism is as well. When you've made the decision to follow after Jesus and you want to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I want people to know about that, when you've fallen in love with him, baptism is an outward celebration. It's a ceremony that celebrates what's already gone on in, in, in your heart and your mind. So when you get baptized, when you go underneath the water, it's symbolic. When Jesus died and rose again, you're too dying to your old ways and coming back, back out of that water saying, I want to live a life for him. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to sprout wings. It doesn't mean you're going to be like turned into an angel and never sin ever again. What it does mean is that you're, you're choosing to be obedient to God. And you want to make him proud, that you want someday to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want, to, I want to make it known that I have a love for Jesus Christ. Even if I'm not perfect, I love Jesus. He's the leader and the Lord and the Savior of my life. So if you want to get baptized, baptisms are next, uh, next Sunday. And I'm really excited about that. So as soon as we're done here, come over here and talk to Pastor Keith. He'll give you all the information to give you a rundown as far as what to expect for baptism. If you've never been baptized before, perhaps next Sunday is your, your time, June 30th, 2019. Perhaps that's a, uh, something that you look back on as a holiday for the rest of your life. Life is the day that you chose to make a public declaration that you love Jesus. If we can pray for you for anything, we have a team of people that are going to be praying up here. If, they're, if, uh, if you're new for the first time and you haven't been here for a while, or if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. We're giving away gifts to our visitors over by the bookstore, so I'll be there as soon as we're done here. And as you leave here this morning, if you want to be a person who is described as a man or a woman after God's own heart, sometimes it means we have to do difficult things. And sometimes that means we have to do tough, challenging things. So here's my challenge for you. Choose to love your enemies, no matter what they've done to you. Love them, forgive them, and perhaps you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You are a person after God's own heart. We'll see you next week as we wrap up the series of The Hunt. Until then, God bless. See you.